Hey there, it's Zach, and I want to sneak in here at the top to say the release of this episode, our discussion of Golden Age Marvel Comics, is only due to us hitting our first Patreon goal. Dave and I are blown away by the support and the enthusiasm we're getting for the podcast, despite the fact that we haven't even released the first episode officially yet. A note on the episode you're about to hear. These Golden Age comics are supplemental to the real My Marvelous Year Reading Club, so don't feel like you have to go back to read all these. I'd only recommend checking them out kind of as a curiosity, but they're definitely not integral to the Marvel reading experience overall. I'd recommend starting with the first year of the club, which is our 1961-1962 discussion. And the episode covering that will be released next Monday, January 7th, the premiere of the show. Also, this was the first episode Dave and I recorded together, and it somewhat shows. The past few months, I've become more comfortable behind the mic and editing the show, but you might be able to tell that this was brand new to me at that point. Dave, on the other hand, sounds like a total pro. So, I'm still happy with how this turned out, and our conversation was a lot of fun, and I think you're going to enjoy it. But just know, I think you're going to hear a real increase in quality with each episode after this. So, enough rambling. Let's get on with the show. The year is 1940, Marvel's Golden Age. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. Welcome to My Marvelous Year. Marvelous Year Comic Book Reading Club, covering all the essential stories from Marvel's origins through today. Today we're going to be looking at the golden age of Marvel Comics from 1939 to, I think, 1941. Some of the origins of, well, kind of origins of some of the superheroes you know, maybe not in recognizable forms. The uh, the Torch, the Submariner. Do you say Submariner? Submariner. I go Submariner. Has okay, always we do. Been how I've interpreted that, yes. Okay. I just had the thought today. I was reading something and I was like, do I, am I saying it wrong? Have I been saying it wrong this whole time? The Submariner. How is that not, um, how is that not like a Seattle Mariners pitcher nickname? That would have been so good. 1939 Marvel Comics. Not quite Marvel Comics yet. Uh, this time they're going under the name Timely Comics and trying to catch up with. Was DC DC at this time with Action Comics? No. So, I mean, well, so Action Comics number one comes first, right? And that's that's the Superman origin from the Golden Age. And that really kicks off sort of the superhero trend. So you've got Martin Goodman, he's the notorious publisher of Timely Comics at this time. And he's he's a trend chaser. Like throughout his publication history, he sees the success of Superman. And that's where we get then uh, Marvel Comics issue number one published in 1939, which will be the the first issue we're going to dive into here. And, and Zach, do you mind if I do the synopsis for this one? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So Marvel Comics number one, it is the, again, it's not the Marvel Comics that we know today, right? This is the golden age. And I think one theme and one question I want to talk about as we go through these is like, do you need the golden age of Marvel to to be a Marvel fan, you know, to to understand the Silver Age? Like what elements of it are actually important? And Marvel Comics number one is kind of interesting because it introduces, as as you mentioned, Zach, um, the Human Torch and the original Human Torch, we should say, not Johnny mm-hmm. Storm with Fantastic Four. Um, the very first story is the original Human Torch. 
and he is an android developed by Dr. I believe Phineas Horton. And he is, uh, anytime this android is exposed to air in any capacity, he bursts into flame. It's a slight, it's a slight design flaw, right? And I think one, like one major thing that stood out to me from this issue is it's, um, it's not superheroes the way we understand them today, right? Like the Human Torch is kind of a horror comic, um, and it's it's sort of a horror comic with a twist. It's 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 a Frankenstein Frankenstein's monster thing, right? Where this uh, the Human Torch, um, Jim Hammond, as he starts to go by in his his alter ego, you know, kind of when he starts developing, you know, more human characteristics, is he bursts into flame, he scares everyone, he seems monstrous, the police want to apprehend him, um, and then it turns out he's, you know, he's kind of a good guy, right? And he ultimately goes on to fight crime and, and be one of the evaders and fight alongside Captain America, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, but, you know, it starts out, it's a, it's kind of a horror comic. And then as Marvel Comics number one progresses, you get, it's, it's an anthology, right? So like each one of these issues is a million pages long. I think they're like, like 66. They're all 65 pages in it's 65. Yes. It's, it's so much to read. And if I can imagine if you were 10 years old in, in 1939 and you pick one of these up for a nickel or whatever, you know, it's again, it's like we're post great depression, pre America entering world war two here, as far as like context goes, like you got so much bang for your buck. I think that's exactly it because I, I think it's quantity over quality. Not, not necessarily that they were just putting quality second, but I think they wanted to make it buying, buying each issue as an event. It, it's definitely supposed to be because, you know, you, you're not picking up these comics, you know, six of these a month. You're not getting your pull list, right? You're, you're probably buying one of these. If, if you're a little kid, you save up your allowance, buy one of these every month or two, and you read it over and over again, and you've got 65 pages. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's plenty to read. It's plenty of entertainment. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see kind of Marvel and, and to see like the superhero genre and comics as a medium getting its footing. So I think the one other thing I want to touch on with Marvel Comics number one is Namor is introduced here, the, the Submariner, as we mentioned. And his story is, is interesting to me in the same way the original Human Torch is in that Namor's kind of a villain from the get-go. And he, he launches as not even an anti-hero, he's a villain. Um, in his first appearance, he kills undersea American divers. Like, he just murders them in the ocean. They talk a lot about his crusade against the white man, which yes. like, is is a slightly, like, that, that phrase for the first few issues is a little, like, makes my skin crawl. And I'm, I'm, I was worried that they were, they were going to turn him into some kind of, you know, analog for a, a foreign hostile power or something. But I don't think that turned out to be the case. He starts to gain half a conscience, at least, as time goes on. But yeah, like I th- think that brings up something interesting about this time period, because I think this was pre-code, right? This is pre-comic book code. Yeah. And you can definitely tell the difference between reading these and the 1960s comics that are going to follow. Yes. You know, a lot more people just casually get murdered in these these comics, and your heroes just kill people a lot more casually, and it's shrugged off. It's It's not necessarily gruesome. But it is a level of violence that I, I feel like the violence, you know, rises here, takes a considerable dip through the 60s, even 70s, when they kind of tiptoe around real violence. And then it starts to slowly pick up through the 70s and 80s again. But uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely a big difference from what comes 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's a great call out because these are, again, you talked about like the entertainment value for 
you know, a youngster reading this, it's also like, it's really gruesome. And they'll have these like prose stories that are about like a man who goes to prison and, you know, crosses someone and gets off and like, it's written in, in pretty gritty, like detail that, that wouldn't, you know, like it's not nearly as well executed as like Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips on criminal today, but like the content's not that different. Um, so when you think about the intended off it, or intended audience and the way these stories are being communicated it's it is kind of shocking to to see in a postcode post like all ages content world like these yeah these can get dark and and namor again like as a a guy who was leading his own story and is sort of a you expect to be a hero like he's he's yeah he's wreaking havoc on and killing people and like he's i think he's literally labeled maybe this is just in my head he's labeled a terrorist i don't know if they actually use that word that even would have been in the consciousness at the time but like that's how he is seen throughout his his early appearances so yeah that's that's marvel comics number one and it's a lot to take in there's a bunch of stories here we've got like a western called the mask raider there's jungle terror which was about like some hypnotic diamonds or something and my, my favorite out of this bunch actually was uh, The Angel, mm-hmm. which is, I think, their, uh, their kind of crime story. And something that comes up a lot in these stories is you, you've got these varying genres, but they all end up, you know, you get kind of superheroes, you've got Tarzan figures, westerns. Very few of them actually have superpowers outside of Human Torch and Submariner. Mm-hmm. You, you've got a lot of these heroes... And they, they kind of look like our modern heroes. They've got costumes and masks and capes, but their only power is really just being good at fighting. So yeah. the, the angel is this skinny blonde guy with this wispy mustache with wings on his costume. And uh, in the first issue, he's just fighting a gang called the Six Big Men. And, uh, <laughs> and it's so good because the first the first one he uh, he meets... He just sneaks up behind him and strangles him to death. Yeah. He, he gets in his car. He just sneaks into the back seat, reaches forward, and then chokes the man to death. And that's how these superheroes dealt with their villains is just this, like, creepy thin man sneaking around strangling people. <laughs> yeah. And this is, you know, this is, what, 30 plus years before the Godfather movies? Like, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. this isn't, like, a common thing. These, these crime stories, I mean... They, I feel like the main villains, the, the the big theme running through these is the majority of the villains are either gangsters or Nazis. Uh, it doesn't yes. matter which superhero we're looking at. It's a lot of fighting gangsters and it's a lot of fighting Nazis, which kind of just shows you what was on the cultural consciousness at the time, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, the one other call out I would say there is not only are they there are these other heroes through the anthologies, but you actually see names that will be familiar to Marvel Comics fans used as Golden Age hero names, um, but they're not at all the same characters. So like during this time, you have Black Widow, not the Black Widow we know. You have the Vision, we'll actually talk about a little, not the Vision we know. Um, Kazar, you mentioned as kind of the Tarzan analog in this, not the Kazar we know, right? So it's I found it interesting because this was not something I was super familiar with, how many of these character names were repeats um, and it kind of makes sense because you have both Stanley in the editorial office of Timely Comics at the time as 17 year old Stanley, 17 year old Stanley, and you see him pop up with some like written prose stories throughout some of these issues, which is fascinating. Uh, and you got Jack Kirby, of course, alongside Joe Simon doing a lot of artwork. So it's not surprising that 20 years later, you know, they'd say, hey, Black Widow, that was a good name, right? And they they'd recast it in the Silver Age of Marvel Comics. Something else I want to mention while we're talking about uh, this early, these early comics is the, is the page layout really differs mm. here as opposed to later in the 60s. I, I don't like these comics necessarily 
uh, face value. Yeah. But there, there's a little, there's, there's some fun to be had with them in the way that they are. They're a little looser than the stuff that came later. They're a little more like sloppy, but in a, a kind of fun, free, like kind of feels like they were writing them page by page almost like yes. they didn't have a, a whole script in mind it kind of sound seem sometimes seems like they are figuring out where the story is going page by page and drawing them and, and that leads to like s- some real like accidental poetry in these there's one line i really like in kazar where uh, the villain of this tarzan story is some white colonialist hunter that they keep describing as this big fat man and Kazar keeps calling him Fat Face. And the uh, the narrator says, Paul the Craft, with a heart as greasy as the rolls of fat that covered his body. Which is, <laughs> is very good imagery. Just this, this evil man with a greasy heart. Yeah. No, there's some there's some good stuff to be found. I think I think in general, just while yeah, while we're on the topic, like I agree with your assessment that they aren't they aren't super necessary reads by any measure. Um, you have to. It, I say this with Silver Age stuff even, but like you have to have a serious historical curiosity to want mm-hmm. to run back to the Marvel Golden Age and the the kind of the origins of this superhero universe. Um, because again, like the origins that most people understand and where my Marvel is here, you know, really begins in earnest that we talk about is 1961 with Fantastic Four number one, right? So these these Golden Age stories are sort of retroactively of a piece with that. And they, again, more than anything, are like these historical curiosities. And I think, not to make it a DC versus Marvel thing, but Superman Golden Age or Detective Comics with Batman in the Golden Age, those stories are a part of those characters' continuity today in a way that this Marvel period isn't necessarily, with the exception probably mostly of Captain America. So because this period, like him being in World War II, is a part of his Marvel Comics background, um, as far as I know today, I don't think they've they've ever retconned like no, he was actually in Vietnam the way they've done with like Punisher, where they you know modernize the different war because there's always a war to carry him over to. Like Cap's always a World War II hero initially. Um, so yeah, I think as a whole, like Golden Age Marvel, it's interesting. It's sometimes funny. It's sometimes just fascinating. But it, in general, it's not like you don't have to have read these to to get into Marvel. No, they're they're curiosities i think if you know if, if you're curious about this dip marvel unlimited has a handful of issues dip your toes in i wouldn't re- really recommend reading a dozen of them like we did it's exhausting <laughs> yeah yeah Re- reading yeah. one or two was fun it, it's kind of like you, you know what these really remind me of are um like old radio serials mm-hmm. right like i see the the writing i think the writing and the genres really seem to be mapped onto that you know like these these old crime dramas and superhero serials it, it they're almost written as if they were meant to be spoken aloud often like that that writing style is aping the the radio serial you know they've got this variety each each issues has four different superheroes or four different types of stories and it tries to cover a little bit of everything they've got the comedy the western the jungle story the superhero let's move on we we also read marvel mystery comic number three uh, the, the main two things I took away from this were the Human Torch story and the Submariner story. The Human Torch... Oh, this, this, is, a, this is a bunch of Martians coming down to steal a professor's, a professor's recipe for Super TNT. Yes. Which I think is very quaint in the age of pre-nuclear weapons. Like, at this point, the Manhattan Project was actually just getting underway, so nuclear weapons were not maybe quite in the cultural consciousness yet so they're they're just talking about with with this recipe for super tnt we'll have the the possibility to take over the world 
and there, there's something kind of quaint about just like a better TNT um, being the focal point of this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's also a very Silver Age plot in that like, you know, the first handful of, of Marvel Stan and Jack issues in the early 60s, like, like I don't know, it's like 80% aliens, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, a gazillion yeah. of them. So it's, I was, I was kind of surprised almost to see them in the 40s as well. Um, I guess I wasn't as aware that that was like uh, a popular running trope at the time, you know, 20 years earlier. Yeah, I like that the aliens come down flying basically just airplanes, like single prop airplanes that just shoot electricity from the front of them, which again is also like kind of a cute style of they're, they're just zapping skyscrapers with lightning bolts shooting out of the front of airplanes. It feels very like a simpler time in sci-fi, not trying to over explain things, not trying to have these these deep deep lore mechanics or anything it's just it's airplanes zapping buildings yeah totally no totally and it's like everything is as it seems <laughs> there's yeah. there's no deeper meaning at all it's just telling a story and it's just telling a, an action story and I, so you've got I, a few things that i wanted to call out here is one is carl burgos is the the creator i think behind a lot of the human torch um i i should mention too like when it comes to Golden Age creative credits, it is it is hard to parse out. I am sure there are historians who have done better work on this than, frankly, I am capable to do justice to in, in this short um, podcast window. So, But Carl Burgos is the main name associated. And I was actually really impressed by his human torch in these because it's I actually think it's more detailed and more kinetic than early Jack Kirby Fantastic Four human torch. And I'm not saying Burgos is better than Kirby because Kirby's incredible. He's the king. But uh, the early, earliest Human Torch stuff in Fantastic Four is just like a blob of fire, you know? And uh, this original Human Torch stuff is, I actually thought it was more detailed. I actually liked his look more. I did too. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because, well, one, yeah, I I liked his look. He reminded me of... um... There's this computer role-playing game, Planescape Torment. Do you know that? I don't it's, know. Uh, it's, it's based on like a D&D, uh, D&D world. It was back, a, kind of a popular um, role-playing game back in the 90s. And in that, one of your uh, one of your party members is this guy named Ignis, who is a, a wizard who was a little too obsessed with fire and started burning down the neighborhood. And the, the local wizards, to punish him, turned him into a portal to the realm of fire. Uh, so he himself, and, and also made him invulnerable to, or immortal, so he is himself is just this walking ball of fire. Uh, that looks a lot like the early Human Torch. It really reminded me of that, the way that they draw him. But then, yeah, they, they do, like, there's some really interesting, fun uses of his power that I feel like Johnny Storm just doesn't do. So, like, I think it's in the first issue with him, someone fires a bullet at him at his forehead, and it just melts. Yeah, It yeah. melts at his forehead in the... the uh, the actual panel is really funny. He just looks glum, like as this bullet yeah. melts against his forehead. Like so, some of the, uh, the the character drawings, Jack Kirby is good when he shows up, but some of the character drawings are very funny in this. Um, he just looks like, not even annoyed, just kind of like a little sad that he's being shot in the head. But the bullet, you know, turns to liquid because it liquefies <laughs> as it hits his head. And then another, I think it's, yeah. I think it's this one, number three. Uh, mystery comics number three there's a runaway train that he's on and to keep it from smashing into anything it's about to crash he just heats up and walks around the train and melts it down under him so he just like the whole, the whole train melts into a pile along the tracks which is a very funny solution to a problem you know and then it just rolls in and it's just four wheels on the uh on the railway track 
so then from Human Torch, we go straight to Submariner, where I did want to call out. So, and again, like Marvel Mystery Comics, um, if you ever read the series, like basically the, the flow of this is it kicks off with the Human Torch comic, and then it's got, you know, Angel and some of the other pieces in the anthology, and then about three or four through, you'll find Submariner. And in issue number three, which is why we include it on the, the kind of the list of the 10 that we consider essential for the Golden Age here, um, you've got Namor where he's cataloged as a prince, I think for the first time. So you get the sense of royalty, which I think is important to his character. Um, he's also in this Golden Age period, you know, he's got the Emperor of Atlantis is this very fishy looking character, not fishy in the sense of like sketchy, but like he's an actual fish. And I think Atlanteans have have certainly progressed artistically since that time. Um, I think in the present day, they're they're typically seen as just like humanoid elfish blue, I think would be the, the simplest version. But here they're like fish looking, like frog looking people who walk on two legs. Big white eyes on either side of their head. Yeah, huge. Like Namor's mom's eyes are creepy. <laughs> they're so big. There, there's a, a manga artist named Junji Ito. Do you know him? He does like yeah. Uzumaki, all those spiral horror comics. And something, a, a through line of his work is this kind of like, he does some semi-realistic drawings, like grounded drawings, but there's this uncanny valley where sometimes people just look just a little off. And that is what lends the horror to this. And that is a real through line of the golden age is that I think it's this accidental uncanny valley where people you're not supposed to find unsettling just have this like unsettling look by their eyes are just slightly too big or yeah slightly spaced too apart or their mouth is a little too close to their nose just just these small touches which is probably a product of trying to pump these out super fast every month absolutely absolutely and this is bill everett we should mention doing the submariner here and uh, i really like his art in the early going i would say everett is kind of the creator who really stood out to me reading these golden age issues that I, again, had not really consumed before. Um, he does, he does underwater scenes, I think kind of interestingly, which is like, I think like you're saying it's part production value where it's just like, they don't have the means to, to really show things underwater, but it's kind of just got these like black sketchy waves where everything just comes across as like dark, mm -hmm. you know? And it's kind of like, like it, it gives the, almost the sensibility of being under the ocean. And it, I think because Namor comes across so villainous and, you know, I don't know that he's scary, but like he is, he is threatening certainly. Um, it kind of adds to that flavor. So, and then in Marvel Mystery Comics number three, you also get the introduction of Betty Dean, who is the female. Is she actually a police officer? She's connected to the police. In, oh, I don't remember. These, these stories just, I, you know, I, I forgot them as soon as I, yeah, they're Teflon. Yeah. Um, Betty Dean is the, is the one recurring, I would say, female character throughout. Um, she's in the Submariner issues, but then she, you know, she starts crossing over the Human Torch a little bit. Uh, she's not, she, you know, she starts fitting that damsel in distress stereotype at times, but she's also like the voice of reason throughout most of these comics. Um, we'll get to the, the big crossover too, but like her, she's an important character in the early days. And I don't know that she's, I, I'm guessing somebody's brought her back since, but I was kind of like, oh, Betty Dean, I don't know that name. And she's kind of important here. I wonder if anybody's using her aside from like the, you know, Kurt Busiak and Alex Ross Marvel's, you know where they're talking about this time period. Her, her introduction is kind of fun, though, where she uh, she's trying to stop Namor, and, and she, she falls <laughs> yeah. into the water and pretends to be drowning. And Submariner, which 
Half the time, he's just trying to kill people. Unless it's an innocent woman or baby, then he relents. But he, he swims over to... <laughs> I do like his rules against, his rules against harming babies. Yeah, that, yeah, that's I did funny. appreciate that, yes. Yeah, he, he swims over to rescue this, you know, this drowning woman. And she, in her bathing suit, just pulls a pistol on him and puts it up against his head. Yeah. Which is very good. And then he just punches her and, I think, knocks it out of her hand. Right, right. She's ready to take him down, which I, I do appreciate. And then appreciate. she convinces him to fight the Nazis instead. Not a hard sell. Yeah. <laughs> So that's basically what this issue winds up being is Namor fighting U-boats, mm-hmm. which is like 95% of Namor <laughs> for the remainder of this yeah. period. And it's always kind of entertaining to, to see Namor punching out Nazis on a U-boat. So. Yeah, at least it feels slightly uh, just justified. There are times where Marvel Comics tries to dip into like wars or fighting that looking back doesn't feel quite so savory i guess or mm, you know i sure a lot of red scare stuff that seems a little hyperbolic and a little <laughs> a little hysterical yeah. now yeah that's being polite <laughs> yeah no for sure and it is interesting to point out too like again this is 1939 1940 you know america had not entered the war so you've got these creators in new york city um, you know, they've got us fighting Nazis and basically like they're ready to send the Submariner and the Human Torch, you know, taking out these characters. And uh, again, like the nation as a whole was not actually in the war at this point, which um, which was raging. Like you've got Britain, you know, I think like basically like Winston Churchill, I think, enters the scene as prime minister, like right as these comics are coming out, more or less. Um, which means you've got like Battle of Britain going on as, as far as just historical context. So I do find that interesting. Um, and that takes us right to a two-part story, which I think we can tackle uh, together because it, it runs together, which is which is notable in and of itself. It's Marvel Mystery Comics number eight and number nine. And this is the Submariner versus Human Torch crossover. And these are probably, if you're going to read any of these 10 issues, these two are definitely the Marvel Mystery Comics to read. Uh, they are the, they're off and celebrated as the kickoff of not only like the Marvel universe, but just of like shared superhero universes in general. I was curious if if they actually beat Batman and Superman to the punch as far as timing goes. And I think technically uh, World's Finest, the, the Batman and Superman combo, they were in like a World's Fair magazine together on the cover before this. So they at least indicated that they were occupying a shared space prior to these stories coming out, but I don't think they actually share the story in that. And then World's Finest number one might come out around the same time. So like basically they're in lockstep. Like DC's not necessarily beating them by any particularly notable measure um, as far as like a crossover story goes. And honestly, these comics were pretty good. Uh, this is, so this they're is- They're pretty funny. Basically, yeah. they're funny, yeah. There, there's some really, really wild stuff that happens that I really like. Basically, it kicks off with Namor on a terror rampage, and it's clear he is the villain, right? Like, he is literally, he is, like, destroying harbors, and he wrecks a bridge, and basically, it's like, Namor's on a rampage. Um, I d- do you remember why? Like, what? No, I don't it? know. <laughs> he's mad. He's mad. Yeah. Yeah, he's mad. He, he knocks the spire off the Empire State Building, which is very yeah. funny. Yeah, he's going at it. And basically, like, Human Torch is the, you know, he's working with the local constabulary and <laughs> police in the area. And they set him out to stop him. Somebody's got to do it. And so you get the Human Torch versus Namor. And again, like, the first showdown of superhero characters carrying across Marvel Mystery Comics. And essentially, the Marvel Universe is born. Uh, in these in these issues so i these were i thought pretty fun again like these have been re um 
reimagined in the pages of 1994's Marvels, which is an excellent kind of uh, retrospective. I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah, it's it's Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. It's like one of the it's one of my favorite comics ever, honestly. And it's four issues where they just kind of take like the biggest stuff in Marvel and reimagine it from like from the point of view of like people on the ground. Oh, I think I read that like when I was a teenager. That actually sounds really familiar reading an Alex Ross thing. I mean, anything he does yeah, is Yeah, it looks amazing. It looks amazing. Um but you know, it's it's there's a reason they pick these two issues, the Torch versus Submariner battle. And it is like if you imagine being a citizen in the Marvel Universe, this is the first time they'd see, you know, superheroes flying overhead um, in this capacity, right? Which would become, like, a known thing throughout the Silver Age. But you've got here Torch and, and Submariner, you know, basically waging war on each other. And I thought, intriguingly, the story ends on a cliffhanger, number nine. Uh, the Mar- Submariner has trapped Human Torch in one of these, you know, flame-proof bottles that are just everywhere. <laughs> just, yeah, they just keep always available. <laughs> And it ends and says, you know, hey, for the conclusion of this, check out Marvel Mystery Comics number 10. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was a three-part issue. I thought it was only two. And it literally concludes on a single page in in Marvel Mystery Comics number 10. And it concludes by Betty Dean basically just saying, like, you guys are acting nuts. Like, what are you doing? Like, use some common sense here. Talk it out. And they do. And it ends. That, that, that really, like, <laughs> that it. brings up the point of, you know, a lot of the um, the crossover stuff at this age it doesn't feel like as much as they're trying to create some kind of, you know, interesting shared universe because, you know, what if these superhuman figures lived in the same universe? It's it's a little bit more mercenary than that. It's a little bit more like, oh, we've got a bunch of kids who love the Human Torch, but maybe they're not reading Submariner. Let's pull them mm-hmm. in over here and, well, a bunch of people bought number nine. Let's make sure they buy. I mean, that, that crosses over to today where every comic needs to end on a cliff, yeah. cliffhanger, no matter how transparent or lame that cliffhanger is. We're 80 years later and we're still doing that. Can, can we back up just a minute to Submariner's Rampage? Because it had, I think, one of my, my favorite moments, which is that he goes to, I'm not sure if it's the Bronx Zoo. He goes to a zoo in New York. I don't know if they call oh, it the Bronx Zoo. Oh, yes. He starts just letting the animals loose to create chaos. And my favorite part is he uh, opens up the, the pen for the big cats and they start rampaging around and attacking people. And then while he's <laughs> has his back turned, a lion charges up behind him to attack him. He spins and punches it. And the, the narration just says, you know, like with a blinding punch, he kills the lion instantly. <laughs> Yeah, he's out here killing lions. <laughs> and then it just moves on to the next thing, right? Yeah, he's just punching lions to death. It, it's just very, like, it's not considered. It's not, like, thought out what we think about the Submariner. It's just, you know, this kind of, like, free consciousness, this this free-flowing, like, they're just like, oh, what, what's he going to do next? Yeah, he's just going to punch that lion to death. And then he's going to let a bunch of elephants free. Oh, but there's a baby. He's got to save the baby. And yeah, there's there's this real like energy to this that that is kind of fun. I do enjoy. Yes, I do enjoy that. Kind of like you're saying that uninhibited imagination where it is just like, what can we do next? Oh, we'll send Mar- <laughs> we'll send Namor to a zoo and he's just going to go crazy in the zoo. And my favorite page from that is he identifies he's like, oh, here's a killer and it's a big elephant. I'm like, oh, I didn't. I don't usually associate elephants with like violent action. They they kind of talked about elephants like they were this like really dangerous, horrible creature. Yeah, and I was just like, yeah, elephants have really been rehabilitated since then. <laughs> I think like we have a very different perception. Um, he also tells the elephant to shut up, which I really love. <laughs> <laughs> I think I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah. All in all, I I really thought these comics were fun. These I definitely got the most out of reading these two in particular. So if, if nothing else, 
Um, I think you should check out Marvel Mystery Comics number eight and number nine. Number eight also has a a crime story called Ferret. Yes. Which isn't really that good or memorable, except for that the main crime fighter is just named Ferret. It got my attention. (laughs) It it did. And I actually read that one a little more thoroughly just because I was like, what's what's Ferret's deal? What What kind of a man is Ferret? So we're back with Human Torch number three. And this is, uh, I kind of include it, I think, primarily because it's an introduction to Toro, who I think is actually introduced in Human Torch number two. Um, but but this was in Marvel Unlimited, and it's, again, just to give you a sense of, like, spinning out of Marvel Mystery Comics, Human Torch and Submariner do get their own books. I don't, I didn't get a ton out of this issue, to be honest, aside from, you know, again, it's like, all right, original Human Torch, he has a kid partner named Toro, who does predate Bucky as far as like being the kid partner of the Marvel Golden Age. Uh, there's definite Batman and Robin vibes. I mean, I don't think there's any question that that is an inspiration here. It feels like chasing the trend, the teenage yes. sidekick. Yeah. Yes, definitely. You know, and it's Toro's running around being kind of a, you know, what would you call it? A twerp. A twerp. <laughs> there you go. And uh, original Human Torch uh, bends him over his knee and spanks him at one point. So that's that's what happens in this comic as far as I'm concerned. I don't have a lot more to add to it. There were two things that stood out to me that I, I wrote down about this. One, at the beginning of this, there's a, a splash page for... I'm not even sure what other comic it was for. It was, I think it was just for, like, other Marvel comics and had a, a bunch of their heroes listed. You know, it was, like, Black Widow and Captain America, Submariner. God, they were really pumping out the, like, superheroes at this time. Mm-hmm. Just kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks and... So many of these lasted one issue. But one of the heroes on this was this, like, very chipper-looking blonde man called Super Slave. <laughs> I'm, curious who's, oh, no. I'm curious what oh, Super no. Slave's deal was. The other thing that I thought was very funny about this issue is at one point, towards the end, um, the Human Torch needs to get a hold of Namor, the Submariner. And he's on a boat out at the ocean with a bunch of gold bricks that I can't remember some you know gangsters had stolen or something and they're throwing him in the ocean and human torch in order to uh get a message to namor just carves like namor come find me the human torch he writes it on the side of a brick and throws it into the ocean <laughs> like yeah he'll find this and i mean he does later it's actually a yeah. different note too like they have namor find it in the next like section of this and it's a very different note like they couldn't even get the continuity on the the note being the same on the brick but i think or he or he just threw hundreds of bricks <laughs> and is just always waiting just one big pile of bricks sitting in one <laughs> it, it is the least efficient form of communication it must be yeah oh wait also this one he uh, he starts fighting some nazi analogs which i thought was kind of odd because mm. like pretty soon actually in the next issue we've got captain america number one coming up not to get ahead of ourselves but captain america number one has this incredible cover of captain america just slugging adolf hitler in the face right it's pretty iconic in this issue of human torch number three he's fighting it's not adolf hitler it's adolf hiccup and benny Mussolini and yeah air medals like it's all these like fascist stand-ins yeah i'm kind of curious why they thought they had to skirt around this like at one point you know adolf hiccup gets his little mustache shaved off or burnt off by a human torch or something burnt off right yeah yeah i think it was just an odd choice of uh worrying about stepping on hitler's toes or something like they they didn't want to uh be sued for libel by adolf hiccup that is a funny point because yeah by by captain america number one they're completely over that fear which is 
as far as the next year, I don't know the dates in front of me, like how many months are separating the two. Um, I see, but I think like, I actually noticed that in, uh, in the daring mystery comics one we did, which is issue number six and I, I kind of jumping ahead on the list. Cause I, I don't think we'll talk about it in too much detail, but, um, Joe, it's a Joe Simon and Jack Kirby joint in which they introduce this Marvel boy. Who's very different than the Marvel boy we know today, but, um, they actually call him, I think Hiller. It's like, it's, it's like a letter removed from Hitler, but it, it's the same sort of thing where they're like, technically it's an analog. We're calling him something else. Um, but yeah, then in Captain America number one, it's just very direct. No, we're fighting the Nazis and we're fighting Adolf Hitler. So yeah, that is an interesting point. I would be curious to dig into that a little more, like what specifically were the concerns? Were they really like, cause I know just from like history classes way back in the day, like there was some pro-Nazi sentiment at the time, right? Like there was, I think at least a debate at the time. In- in America at the time, to a degree, yeah, just at the time, right? Yeah. Um. So, so maybe they were worried about that. Maybe, maybe it had nothing to do with it. Maybe it was just like that's a storytelling convention, and we're going to keep it um, fictional. Yeah. In our, you know, because it wasn't like the the catchphrase today is like Marvel is the world outside your window. I mean, they didn't like launch out of the gate necessarily with that in mind. I think they're kind of doing that um, with Namor and Submariner and like New York City, but I don't know that that was necessarily a conscious thing until until much later. So let's we can move right into Captain America number 1 again. That cover just can't be overstated how good that cover so good. is. I feel like I, I'd be surprised if there's not a lot of uh like modern artists who have redone this one because I think it's very iconic. And I don't think I loved this one. It was solid enough. It wasn't the best, but it is interesting and impressive how they uh, they set up a lot of the like Captain's story. Like he's a scrawny little you know welterweight who wants to join the war effort and can't quite make it. And but his dedication to the cause causes this doctor to give him a super serum. Bucky Barnes is introduced. The Red Skull is in here. Not the real Red Skull, but the first fake Red Skull. So they, they set up... I mean, I, I don't think I've ever actually read Captain America's origin, if they have this in a different format somewhere else. But this kind of mapped one-to-one with the MCU's version of Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah. I mean, it was familiar to me just from that. So oh, that was pretty interesting. The, the, the one thing I want to bring up right now is when he gets his super serum, the shot that they have, the panel of his transformed body is so funny because I, this is Jack Kirby, right? Yeah. Who needed to take an anatomy class because the way that he gets muscular is he just gets this extra six inches of torso beneath his pecs and above his abdomen. So he just Uh has this entirely second set of pectoral muscles beneath his first one. Like, he doesn't get bigger abs, he gets more pecs. (laughs) So he has two equally sized pecs there, and it's really incredible. Yeah. No, it's it's good stuff. Uh, Yeah, this is Joe Simon and Jack Kirby introducing Captain America. And yeah, to your point, I mean... The Cap origin, it, it comes out of the box fully formed, which I think is why he's been such a lasting character. Um, the first 10 pages detail his origin. Again, you've got Nazi spies everywhere, which this was another like historical piece that I was kind of curious about because it was like the fear of like Nazi spies infiltrating the government and kind of just being like everywhere and not knowing who you could trust. Um, it's an interesting kind of kind of microcosm of what may have been going on in the country at the time. Uh, I don't know how much of this is like fear induced and overstated and how much of this is something that was really happening personally. Um, but again, I one thing I found interesting with Kirby's art at this time is the panel flow of this comic. It zigzags mm-hmm. rather than goes left to right, like very frequently. And it again just indicates like this is so early in the medium of, of superhero comics. I, I read a ton of comics and I found it confusing. Um, they actually put arrows 
in yeah. the, between the panels to guide your eye, which I, you know what? I liked the panel layout of these Golden Age comics so much more than Silver Age. I don't know if that's hmm. a controversial thing to say, but that that is like one of the main contributors to when I find the Silver Age comics dull, it is that it is just 12 panels, three wide, four tall, and it's just yeah. 12 uniform panels, panel, 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 slide down one panel, 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 full of text. And having this kind of like dynamic, each page has a different layout and your eye is jumping all over the place. I, I think I, I liked the, I wouldn't say the art is neater, uh, and the design is not as considered in these early comics, but I think just the layout of these these comics I preferred to what's going to come in twenty years. That's interesting. It, that's interesting. I don't I don't know that I agree, but it is interesting to to note. And it, like it's very helter skelter. Um, it so, again, like some of that I'm sure is is production cost and like figuring out literally figuring out how to do this at scale. But then some of it too is like how do we tell a story. <laughs> with you know seven panels on a page or eight panels and like there's no set rule to this at all and they're just kind of making it up as they go as as i think you said earlier so the only other thing i would note with kappa number one is i i do think like as historical curiosities go it's up there with marvel mystery eight and nine as far mm-hmm. as like listen if you're gonna go back to golden age marvel read captain America yeah check this one, one out like it's it's definitely worth it yeah um i do think the red skull story is it's definitely the one that got my interest the most because we really don't have unless you count namor there's really not a super villain no from this time period nameless aliens or mobsters mm-hmm. and red skull enters the scene and like i thought he was in immediately and part of it is like i don't know how you can separate it from knowing what he becomes but i thought he in- immediately stood out as this dynamic villain again he's got this creepy mask he's clearly like it's clear that he's wearing a mask, I think, the way it's artistically styled. But I'll be honest, I did not know this wasn't going to be the Red Skull that we know today. I didn't I, either. I actually I, didn't I, see that coming. I, I have written on my notes, too bad the Red Skull kills himself here. He could have been a good villain because I, I just assumed <laughs> right. that they'd killed him off here and then decided later to, you know, retcon it like a million other villains like they do constantly. But I guess it turns out that there's an, a whole other person called the Red Skull. Yeah, it's a totally different guy. Um, it's this Maxon. A corporate bigwig who's kind of you know it's kind of plays like a scooby-doo mystery almost but yeah it's like it's not the red skull we know and it kind of i don't know if this has been played with in in the modern times at all but like it introduced an interesting idea to me of multiple red skulls running around i mean this is something that like so it's 2018 we're recording this. this is something that dc's talking about with their three jokers story coming up where they're kind of like they're playing with the idea of different eras of jokers but i kind of like the idea of like the Nazis had red skulls in different territories. And you've got the one, of course, that we know is Captain America's arch enemy. But then, like, why wouldn't there be a red skull in South America, right? Like a totally different guy. Um, so I don't know if that's been played with at all, but it, it did kind of raise some interesting ideas to me. Or, or like a mantle that gets passed down generation to generation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know what? I don't know enough about the red skull to, to weigh in too strongly on this. No. Uh, I think I've only read a couple, couple Captain America Silver Age red skull stories. Bucky gets enlisted as Captain America's sidekick here in a really funny way, which is that Captain <laughs> yeah. America, Steve Rogers is just like putting, he walks into a tent, uh, starts to put on his Captain America outfit and Bucky just follows in like, hey, Mr. Rogers, oh, my stars, you're Captain America. And Captain America just immediately goes, oh, well, you know my secret. You'll have to fight alongside me as my sidekick. <laughs> like, and eventually yeah. get killed, right? So like, this is the beginning of the end for, for Bucky. 
it's such a jump in logic <laughs> to be like the only way to protect the secret is to bring you on dangerous missions constantly. Either you're going to be my sidekick or I'm just going to have to kill you now, little boy. Right. Poor Bucky. Um, yeah, it is weird. The whole, I, I do love the way that that's been modernized, you know, in the, the Ed Brubaker and, and Steve Epting Winter Soldiers, certainly like they, they've rehabilitated Bucky in ways that are very, very fascinating in the 2000s. Um, but here it's, I don't know, just reading it today, it's like the boy sidekick thing is so weird. <laughs> it's just like, it's so illogical. It does. It wasn't even a thing at the time. It's not like they had 10-year-olds in the military. He was. He's like the war mascot, they call him. And I, I don't know what that means. It's like a more militaristic Boy Scout. So Submariner number four uh, is what we read next. I don't remember anything about this except, oh, he goes to some island where these doctors are performing experiments on people. But thing that sets this off that it is pretty good is... Uh, there's a guy who's drowning in the Submariner. You know, he'll, he'll go through New York City and punch buildings down and kill lions with a single blow. But if he sees someone in trouble, he feels compelled to save them, which I think is a, a weird dynamic. He sees this guy drowning and goes to save him, but the guy keeps flailing around. So uh, Namor just punches him unconscious so that he can rescue him, which is pretty good. <laughs> he, he knocks him out and then drag, drags him to shore. And then it turns into some horror comic. This, this one's kind of strange. Like This one is kind of a horror comic of like uh, these creepy surgeons who are murdering people during surgery. And then there's another story in this where, oh my god, I don't remember the context at all, but someone creates this really creepy uh like 30 or 40 foot tall skull giant you remember this no <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i skipped through, <laughs> i skipped through the second story the, yeah. the end of this it, it's some like mad science thing it kind of looks like the red skull but with a white face um okay he just is this like giant with a, a, a skull the zombie but the way that submariner deals with him is he trips him to fall into the water and then he just stands mm-hmm. on his head pushes him underwater and stands on his head until he drowns to death like just slowly like murders this thing who who then immediately just turns into a giant skeleton and some like he, all of his flesh falls off a giant skeleton bobs to the surface and some policemen just say wow that'll make great halloween decorations classic <laughs> classic namor yeah so that's that's a mariner number four <laughs> and again i include that one on the list just to be like yeah he had an ongoing these are the types of stories he was in uh that brings us to let's see we have all winners comics number one is next on the list and so this is the first anthology that brings together and this one is now we're in 1941 when this is coming out so we've got a couple years kind of 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 the marvel universe in the in its golden age generation and all winners brings together submariner human torch captain america bucky toro and I believe Angel is on the cover. Do I have that right? I could be forgetting. I don't. I don't know. You know yeah, what? At, um, th- at this point, I was like skimming through these. The only thing that stood out to me about this one was how horrifyingly racist the drawings of the Chinese and Japanese were in this. Yes. Ooh, it's it, not good. Oh, it's rough. Like there was actually in, back in, uh, I think it was Marvel Mystery Comics number eight. They fought some aliens and the aliens definitely were supposed to be this like analog for these race, racist Asian stereotypical drawings. Like they had these kind of slanted eyes. They had, they had, um, they were like fish creatures with these like catfish whiskers that were kind of supposed to stand in for the Fu Manchu thing. But the, these drawings, it's interesting because Human Torch is helping the Chinese. There's like a group of Chinese Americans, I think, trying to raise money for their war effort back in China to fight the Japanese. So it, it's it's clearly like a little pro-Chinese here. Even so, the Chinese that are drawn here are just like 
it's it's rough like i know we're you know we're looking at this in 2018 glasses but it's it's not pleasant to look at no no and i think that's totally fair to call out i the one thing i noted from all winners and honestly there wasn't a lot to take away here is i was expecting an invaders team up i was really thinking this was going to be the the first iteration of these characters all coming together and fighting in world war ii together and it is not that. It is just five solo stories starring these characters. So I was a little disappointed in that regard. Um, so that takes us right to Daring Mystery Comics number six, which I touched on briefly with, with Marvel Boy, who is not at all Marvel Boy. Um, the reason I included it was it was Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, Captain America creators. So I was kind of curious what else they were creating at the time. There's definitely some other stuff. But th- so this Marvel Boy is he's kind of like a Thor predecessor in some way yeah i guess i didn't think of that but for sure he's just like his body is inhabited with the spirit of hercules yeah yeah it's got all the mythology going on you can definitely see how that would start to like that become a bigger thing by the time we hit the silver age you know with tales of asgard hercules himself becomes an avenger at some point uh, mm-hmm. it's not that thor like dual you know spirit body thing Mar- marvel boy basically got really dull as soon as his origin was over except yes. for the way that he is drawn cracks me up like marvel boys drawings are my favorite in this whole bunch anytime he has his mask on they draw his mask with his eyes way too far apart with this like dull cow eyed stare that is just so funny the cover of this one is hilarious he just has this like total this is the one that reminded me of junji ito the most like he just his eyes bulge just a little bit and he kind of looks like he's staring off into space as he's also punching some nazis it's really good and then he never shows up again i think this is like the one issue with him i think he came in for an issue the only thing i noted about daring mystery comics is this was like definitive let's just like throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks because i, I have a list here this uh this issue had marvel boy Superman, which is kind of a satire of uh superman which did you read that one? I did. It kind of had some okay jokes. It's not bad. It's, it's not terrible. I mean, it's funny in that it's like, this is what dad humor was in 1941. Like, Oh, totally. Um, yeah. You know, they, they call him like something like one of the world's greatest hunters who knows how to stock celery as he, you know, munches on a stock of celery. Uh, Good pun. Like Good pun. So yeah. we've got Marvel Boy, Superman, Falcon, which has nothing to do with the Falcon, Dynaman, the Flying Flame, Tiger Man, and Monaco, the Prince of Magic. Those were all in this one mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just was, it was too much. Um, yeah, and Monica, yeah, it's not great. Monaco seems like a little bit of a Doctor Strange precursor. I would actually say, honestly, if you're going to read one thing from Daring Mystery Comics, I think it's Superman. <laughs> like, yeah, Superman is funny, yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. There's some good gags. And it's it's compelling to me that not even two years after his debut, like Marvel was already satirizing Superman in the pages of one of their anthology books. I mean, this is, there's a famous uh, Mad Magazine, Super Duperman. I don't know if you've ever read, which mm-hmm. is, um, it's the Mad Magazine founder. It's, it's drawn by Wally Wood. And um, it's like kind of this classic satire, but this is like 15 years before that. And Marvel's already, like, you know, coming at the competition. So I found it interesting in that regard. I mean, listen, it's not incredible by any measure, but it's it's no, kind of funny. It, it's just kind of funny to see what, you know, what passed for humor in these days. It, and I wonder if, uh, I'm kind of curious if um, Bizarro Superman um, mm. was a thing before this. I, I, I'm assuming he didn't get introduced for a while, but there's a little bit of that. Like, he flies backwards, and he's, like, he's just kind of Superman, but reverse in a lot of ways. Like, at one point, uh, I think the fire chief tells him there's a fire across town, and he just has, like, the fireman carry him to the fire because he doesn't want to waste yeah. energy. Uh, yeah. Lots of stuff like that where he just does, like, 
the opposite of what Superman would do. Uh, it kind of felt like a little bit like I was reading like early precursor Bizarro. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good call out. I, I think that's totally fair. So that brings us to the final book that we had on the list, which is Marvel Mystery Comics number thirteen. Um, the only reason I include this one, and again, it's got your you know it's got your torch and submariner stuff. But the only reason I include this one is it's got uh, a story called um, or starring the Vision, who uh, is it's a Joe Simon and Jack Kirby comic, mm-hmm. which again stands out. And again, like it's not the Vision that we're gonna know. But it's not so far off that I wouldn't I like I would think this would actually probably have inspired the Silver Age Vision who debuted um, under the pen of Roy Thomas in Avengers in the the kind of mid '60s. So it's this character named uh, Arcus, I think is the Vision. Arrakis, like. I thought I read it as, but it might be, Arrakis. It might be okay, Arcus, I don't know. Yeah, um, but he's like the supernatural smoky. He's kind of like the Spectre on the DC side almost. Um, but I, it's not like, I don't know, it didn't necessarily stand out to me too much more than a lot of these comics, aside from the part where it's like, it puts the supernatural twist on some of the Nor stylings and kind of the fighting gangster stuff that they've been telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's obviously like a kernel of a good idea that would then eventually get shaped into, you know, one of the more famous Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. That, this one didn't particularly, I, I, I saw that, oh, Vision is in this one, and I read it and was like, oh, well, but not really. His color his, no. his color palette is the most, like, familiar thing about this comic. Yes, yes, totally. So, and that's, honestly, like, that's a pretty good summation of most of the Golden Age, which is like, oh, it's, oh, not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's yeah. all kind of, Except Captain America and somewhat Submariner. Submariner. Honestly, Submariner's very close. Like, he's, he remains, he has remained similarly complex yeah. throughout his history right alternating that line between, between villain yeah. and hero mm-hmm. yeah totally and it's like you know you kind of called out like the the sort of vague whims of like who he's going to save or when he has a conscious and that's that holds today i think hates like, the fantastic four loves sue storm yes exactly exactly so i think he's a complex character and i think that is stood the test time i i do think maybe a little bit like maybe modern day magneto like the villainy of his actions has maybe been downplayed in order to play up the complexity. Like, again, like it should not go underreported here that Namor has killed a lot of people who are not like he has murdered and a lot of um, lions and <laughs> too many lions for goodness sake. So, yeah. So uh, wrapping up the golden age, I think hey, we, we've said this, but if you're really interested, this is 100% not necessary to get the backstories of any of these characters really. But if you're curious, you know, dip your toes in, skim through, find a story or two that interests you. It, it's similar to um, Marvel Mystery Comics, even in the 60s. I know the, f- the first year of My Marvelous Year we read, is it is it Marvel Mystery Comics? Those little, like, five Twilight Zone stories? Oh, yeah, yeah. They Well, they run in a lot of the backups of, like, Tales of Suspense Tales, and, yeah, yeah, that's and Journey to Mystery and all that. Like, yeah. th- those are pretty fun on the, you know, once in a while. Pick one up, skim right. through it. They're, they're fun little relics. I actually think those are... Those are more interesting. De- definitely not like if someone felt like reading through the whole Golden Age. Well, one, I don't know how you would find it, but two, it, it would be quite the slog. And yeah, I, I think getting a little taste is worth it. Marvel Unlimited has a nice little selection. But um, yeah, I think you'll probably get most of what you need to know just by listening to this. Yeah, honestly, it's yeah. I mean, that, I think that was my main question going into it was like, how much of the Golden Age is is really recommended here? Like, I, and I know like just on comic book side of things, I mean, diehards come in and they're like give me every marvel comic i want to start from the very beginning and honestly it's just it's just not necessary with golden age i think 
Check out Marvel Mystery Comics 8 and 9. Check out Captain America number 1. You're really good from yeah, there. I think those, those um, are probably the, the best bets. Yeah, yeah. Everything else is just like... if you, Hey, if you find that you really enjoy these these stylings, like keep going. Um, but honestly, like Marvel's Golden Age isn't isn't what they would be. So uh, it's interesting as far as like the history of this publisher. Because again, mm-hmm. like they keep publishing throughout the rest of the 40s. You know, we're just doing 39 to 41 here for like the true publisher origins. But they keep publishing throughout the 40s and the 50s. It's just like they don't find their footing, right? They just don't. It, it looks like they're just chasing, chasing trends. It's just like whatever they yeah. think is going to be popular that year, you know, they just, they're constantly switch. I mean, it's, it's like I said with Daring Mystery Comics, where it's just like, here's six new superheroes that you've never heard of because they were just like, they didn't find one thing and commit to an idea. They kind of just threw a yep. bunch of stuff up. Maybe one of them will take off and then we'll stick with them. That kind of, you know, a little bit more mercenary than artistry. Yeah, so I think that's going to wrap up uh, our dive into the Golden Age here. Again, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of comicbookherald.com you can find more of my writing there yeah well um if you're uh, i guess if if you're hearing this that means uh the the show is going all right because this will probably be a, a special bonus if uh if things take off with the show congratulations us i guess um, <laughs> way to go yeah yeah that's the golden age marvel this is my marvelous year uh, yeah thank thanks for thanks for listening yeah we will see you next year see you then uh-huh.